back to On the Mic with Mike Peters. My guest this week is Wendy Wilkins. She moved to Los Angeles in 1992 after growing up in the Binghamton area, so we talked a lot about Binghamton and comedy in the 90s. Two of my favorite subjects. She's a writer, a stand-up, worked on Mr. Show and Brooklyn Nine-Nine. I had a ton of fun talking to her and can't wait to work with her when she's back in Binghamton. If you don't want to wait that long, you can see the On the Zoom show on Saturday, April 10th. John Deming and James Mack are going to be telling jokes, and Wendy's closing the show. Tickets are 5 bucks and available through Facebook and Eventbrite right now. Patreon members get into every show for just 5 bucks a month. Thank you guys so much for listening. Please like, share, review, and subscribe to the podcast. I'll talk to you guys next week. Take care. I'm peeling back my sunburnt skin. I'll wait outside your bedroom. I hope they let me in. Thank you for doing this. I... Did I pull you away from anything important? No, I'm okay. Wednesdays actually are my night where I generally don't do stand-up. And I do, I just concentrate on, I'm also a screenwriter. So I just concentrate on like writing and I spend the whole night writing. But then I had a mic. And so it's okay because yesterday I had to drive to Utah. It's a whole thing. So I drive cars for rich people around the United States. So I did that yesterday. So I was like, oh, it's okay. I'll do, I have another day to catch up. And then I was writing. Well, well, I spent the last two days watching How I Met Your Mother. So you're, uh, <laughs> we're the same, you're better than the I same. am. <laughs> <laughs> we both accomplished something. That's all yeah. that matters. <laughs> yeah, You know, it's pathetic. Like, uh, cause you're in LA. So I don't know if you'd appreciate yeah. this at all, but the first time I was ever in California, I went to San Diego for a wedding and I don't know, six or seven of us guys, we're all college friends. We got together, hadn't seen each other in like a year or two all together. And in San Diego, we watched the first three seasons of how I met your mother. And I, I mean, at least like I went to I went to a Padres game and I went to an Angels game. So I did something. But really, around that time, I watched three seasons of How I Met Your Mother. And I don't care how good the show is. We still flew across the country to San Diego, rented a place and a car to watch somebody else's Netflix account. (laughs) Did you at least eat steak? Come on. I'm not a steak guy. No, oh. we had fish tacos and I made sure I had that. Okay. Well, and, that's good. Cause you're in San Diego. That's appropriate. Yeah. And I had, Oh man, I was so mad. I had to go to, I had to go to SeaWorld and I didn't mind going, but I had to pay like $72 or something like that to get in the park. Now there, I read a book. I had a book on Willie Mays that I needed to finish so I can give it back to one of my coworkers. And I read Willie Mays' book at SeaWorld. I got nothing else out of SeaWorld. It was terrible. Yeah, it's a bad place anyway, so. I was never able to get up to L.A. because we were, you know, we went there for a wedding, believe it or not. And the one day we were going to get up to L.A., my buddy who's getting married needed us to move tables and chairs at the hall. So it's kind of screwed us over. So that's my regret. How long have you been in L.A.? Uh, since 92, so 28 years. Oh, my God. You were there for the exciting parts. I was right after the riots. Okay. Right. And then uh, and then there was the uh, huge fires that hadn't been in a really long time. And now that they're standard. And then there was flooding on the burn things. So there was a lot of mudslides. And then the earthquake hit. So there was a lot of shit going down. So it was a tumultuous time there. It was crazy. Did you feel like uh, you shouldn't have gone over there? Like maybe it was your fault? No. <laughs> <laughs> that, yeah, <no. laughs> that was funny, you know, because like, it's funny, I found a letter way later, my mom passed away in 99. And I found a letter in her things, like even way later, like 
like five years ago. And it was a letter that was like begging me not to move to Los Angeles. It was like a 10 page letter my mother had written me. I don't remember reading it. So she must have given it to me. And then I must have just like put it away and not dealt with it. But then I'm telling you, as soon as I got out here, she was my biggest supporter, send me money constantly. And when things got tough, I'm like, I know I shouldn't, I shouldn't, I don't want, I know I need to be here. And I know I don't have any friends or money or anything, but I know I'm supposed to be here. She goes, you are supposed to be there. You are supposed to do what you're supposed to do. And like, she always encouraged me. And when she got diagnosed with, she said it was MS that affected her brain, but we think she got environmentally poisoned by IBM. I mean, come on. She worked there 20 years in clean rooms. So Yeah. yeah, of course. So she, you know, it fucked up her brain. But before her brain went, uh, I was like, I'm coming home. And she's like, no, no, no. You are the first person in our family to get to do what you want. You're staying. Your brother will take <laughs> care of me. And then my brother fucked up. I had to deal with that. But like, like he, she just was like adamant. So like all it took was me to leave the nest. But once I left the nest, she was totally fine with it. And actually was just like, you go, you do what you need to do to make your dreams come true. And it was just like the best thing ever. That's amazing. Like that's a really cool gift because like I'm from Endicott. And you're, you're, are you from Vestal or Endicott? I was from, uh, well, I, many different towns. Uh, okay, okay. Started off, started off, uh, we were in Pennsylvania. My dad worked for uh, New Channels. It was okay. Empire Cable, and then became New Channels, then became Time Warner. And he worked, uh, they sent him down for six, for a year down to uh, the headquarters, which was outside of Philly. And so we lived outside of Philly for a year. In that year, I was born. So six months in, I was born. And then after six months, after the year, he was like, yeah, I don't like it down here. So we went, came back up. So we lived in Johnson City, and then we lived in, in Appalachian on the street that's named after my family. I'm a Decker. Uh, oh, okay. I'm actually a Decker Becker. <laughs> my, my mom's side of the family's from JC, and they're Beckers. And then my dad's side of the family's Deckers, and they're from Appalachian. Vestal. Okay. And so um, we lived there, and then I went to kindergarten there. And then we moved to Endicott for two years. I was at Ch- uh, Charles F. Johnson for first yeah, I remember and second grade. And then we went back to Appalachia when parents got divorced. I lived on the Appalachian golf course for a year. And they used to have a house. It was a farm that they turned into a golf course. And there used to be an old farmhouse. And they rented out the bottom top. We lived in the bottom. It was my dad, my grandma, my brother, and I. There was mesh on all the windows. And you had to look before you left because it was right by the sixth hole. So you could get beamed by a golf ball (laughs) if you went outside, you know. And then... um, well, that was for a year. And then my dad married my stepmom. And my mom got a job. Uh, she was working at a different manufacturing plant after my parents got divorced. But then she got the night shift at IBM because it was more money. And so they worked it out that we lived with my dad during the week and my mom on the weekends. And then my dad married my stepmom. And then we moved out to Vessel Center. And so from fourth grade on until I graduated, I lived in Vessel. Yeah, so graduated from Vessel Senior High. Well, we'll get to this because I might know some people related to you, but I'm sure the, the, <laughs> I'm telling you the town is, yeah. it's like, everybody's related to everybody. And my family's been there for four or five generations. They were farmers that moved up from, you know, the Catskills and started working manufacturing. So I've, I've got a long history there in Vestal and Appalachian. Well, what I was saying is that it was a really nice gift of your mom to say, Hey, you know what? Get the hell out of this town, go somewhere, you know, with more than one mall. And try to make something yourself because like, I am the only one in my family. I graduated college. Uh, Everybody's done that almost. Well, that's not true. That's not even true. Where'd you go? Where'd you go? I went to Mansfield in Pennsylvania. Oh, I went to SUNY New Paltz. I started out at Broome and then went there. Yeah. I couldn't get into SUNY school because I got a 45 on my trig test. Oh, it was terrible. You know, at that point I'm like, you know what? Fuck it. I know I already got into Mansfield. So who cares? 
Right, so I'm right. like, I'm not even studying for the test. But my sister went to, um, she went to grad school in New York City, came back. But I went to Pennsylvania and then Maryland. And for like eight or nine years, I escaped the southern tier of New York. And I felt like that was the biggest victory. I was in Baltimore. And then I'm like, fuck it. I came back. So now I got to go again. But but I think it's amazing that that your mom's like, no, 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 no. Just do it. Do what you want. It wasn't so much about the area because I do think it was a great place to grow up. It could have been a little bit more culturally diverse and culturally invested. Uh, like I was always a city kid. I watched all the New York City channels. I just it, like was so hungry for that kind of diversity. But it was a great place to kind of grow up and kind of figure out who you are. And yeah, there's a lot of drawbacks, but it also was really good. So for my mom, it was more about you go to a place where you can have more opportunity to make your dreams come true. Don't get stuck. And I'll tell you the story. I, my community college boyfriend, and I use that term boyfriend uh-huh. very loosely. Uh, she, my mom walked in on us having sex in the living room. And, okay. uh, right. it, no, time out, time out. Yeah. What were you doing in the living room? Like, don't you have a door, okay. like a bedroom? Like, let me tell you. Okay. It was like, it was a hot, <laughs> July afternoon, I was watching Oprah, and he just showed up at my door. I get it. No, completely. Whenever I watched Oprah as a kid, I got turned on, too. So I get it. Anyways, he just knocked at the door, and he's like, hey, what's going on? Which I knew many wanted to fuck. And so then right, right. he comes in, and he's like, come on, come on. I'm like, no, my mom's coming home soon. My mom's coming home soon. And then he just did that guy thing where he just bugs the shit out of you. Yep. And you say, fine, get it over with. You that's, know, That's my move. So it was right yeah, is that true? Yeah. So it's right there on the beanbag chair and we're doing it. And then I hear the back door open and I hear my mom go, Hey, I got pizza. And I was like, fuck. So he, he didn't have, a, he didn't even have his sports off. They were on his ankles. So he goes to the couch and I pull a blanket over me. My mom immediately knew what was going on. And she's like, Oh, hi, Wendy. And his name was Myron. Oh, hi, Myron. And then uh, he went to Endicott, by the way. And so then she's like, Wendy, can I see you in the kitchen? So I was like, sure. And so she leaves and I turn him. I'm like, get on the porch. You know, I was like so pissed. So I throw on my shorts and I go in the kitchen. I go, mom, 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 I, I, I'm going to have him go. And she goes, honey, I'm going to go. I just want to tell no you kidding. one thing. I'm going to tell you one thing before I go. Be careful. He's not a very bright boy. And then she left. <laughs> and it totally was like, don't fucking get knocked up like I did. Get the fuck out of here. Get the fuck out of this town. You got, don't get knocked up. So thank God, you know, and so that I broke up with him immediately. And it's, it's so funny because I will, I used to run into his mom at the grocery store when I came home, you know, and she yeah. goes, you were always the best girlfriend he had. I was like, I was not the best girlfriend, but like, she just liked me, you know, she's like, that can happen. Oh my God. That's funny. I, I was so, walking. Then on once, I must have been 18, 17 or 18. And my I was hanging out with my girlfriend at her grandpa's house. And <laughs> we were just we were just making out and then eh, moving in a high school fashion. We were we we're dry humping. And uh, I love dry humping, by the way. Oh, it's on the way on the wayside as an adult. I want to bring it back. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's the one porn category that's hard to find. Not a, <laughs> not a whole lot of dry humping on you porn. <laughs> but uh, but her grandpa walked in on, you know, I was on top of her, I think. No, she's on top of me, I think. So I, I was able to see his his face and the disappointment in that 87-year-old Italian man's face. I think the last thing he wanted to do was feed me gnocchi the next Sunday. But like, <laughs> I, 
I left the house and I was like, she's like, you, you better leave. I'm like, okay. She called me later and she's like, yeah, he, he was disappointed because like her cousin had gotten pregnant like that year. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, and I'm like, so I he, he was like, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Well, luckily yeah. for me, I also had uh, genetics on my side because I've always had a uh, uh, fucked up lady parts. So I've never, I've only, I mean, it's very rare that I have uh, sex without a condom and my owner was one of them. So I was always kind of nervous that something would happen, but my body has never, uh, my body started breaking down at 25. So I had a tumor the size of a chicken and then I had a fibroid and a cyst. So like my body, my baby making days probably since birth have always been compromised. So like, luckily there was that too. I got, I got out with the skin of my teeth, not getting knocked up, you know? So luckily I'm defective. <laughs> yeah, I'm defective. I also was a marching band and that kept me from getting knocked up in high school too. So that yeah. by the way, we yeah, are very horny on the band bus, but you could do a lot except for that. That's the one thing you can't do. You can do all the other things. You just can't so, fuck on a band bus. Uh, I was a marching band too. My dad was a director. And Oh, at UE? Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. Barry Peters. Oh, was he there in the eighties too? He got there in eighty eight. So he, he worked. Oh, I graduated in 87. So yeah, he, he worked at Liverpool and they won like the national class tournament. Uh, they beat then, West Jenny. Yeah. And then he came. Well, to, we uh, competed. Uh, we were, we were always like seventh or eighth in the championships at the carrier dome. But, but yeah, if he was Liverpool. Yeah. Wow. That's great. That's awesome. Yeah. So we went on a class trip to Florida and, uh, that's when I met my girlfriend, started making out with her and everything. And, uh, she got on the bus and like his bus. And one of her friends was like, oh, my God, you were making out with Mike Peters. So, like, three feet behind her is my dad. I was like, well, at least I'm not on that bus, you know? I dodged that <laughs> What'd you play? What'd you play? I played tuba pretty well, and I played trombone pretty well. And then I could do trumpet and euphonium and baritone. Not really well, but I could play. I, I, got, I got pretty good at the baritone and euphonium. But trumpet, my dad was a trumpet player. I had braces, and I'm like, man, I am such a big disappointment to him because he's legitimately very good. And yeah. I was like, no, like I could barely hold the thing. But you marched as a sousaphone player then. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I, yeah I, I twirled. I twirled. Okay. I have my rifles. They're right over there. <laughs> <laughs> Are they registered? I incorporate that in my standup. Yeah. <laughs> I think uh, the misconception with marching band people is that they don't get laid. I mean, when I was in school, American Pie came came about. So like that was kind of flipped on its head a little bit. But yeah, like the biggest problem with the band kids is that they were so incestuous. Like everybody dated yep. each other. I, I hate it. Like my girlfriend, the only girlfriend I had, uh, one of three, but the only girlfriend I had in high school was in marching band. She was, you know, she's on the color guard, so she didn't play an instrument. So I was like, oh, maybe I skated out of that. But I had a friend on that trip to Florida. She asked me out and I said, no. And she said, she's like, why? I said, well, because you dated Jason, you dated Josh, you dated Tim, you dated the other Jason, you dated Rob, you dated all of my friends. I don't want to do that. So she's like, <laughs> that is so fucking true people don't understand like it's just like we stay within our we eat lunch in the band room and then we all make out with each other we all do yeah. i wasn't so much because there wasn't too many guys that i i liked in band when i was a freshman i dated a senior trombone player who uh had never kissed before me so that tells you a lot about him <laughs> i believe and then that he wore he wore brute, like brute cologne, brute aftershave, brute, like deodorant. Like he just reeked a brute. So now when I smell brute, I'm like, oh, like, and so, and he broke my heart. He broke, he broke up with me to date another girl named Wendy that he was in love with, who was in Maybe color guard too. 
I guess, I guess. So anyways, uh, but then I didn't date anybody else in band. Like, I don't even think I had crushes on anybody. I just, I ended up going against type, you know, like I would have loved to have made out with somebody on the band bus, but like, it seemed like all the band people who were coupling up were not people I would have wanted to couple up with. So I was like, ah, I'm good. I'll, I'll, I'll get the guys at Denny's that I work with. <laughs> <laughs> you, know what, you know, it's weird though. Like I, cause I, I'd made out on the bus. I didn't do anything really, you know, handsy or whatever, but yeah. uh, then I was at a wedding. I don't know, like 2015 maybe. And I was hanging out with this, this woman and we were on the back of the bus and just, we were the only two in the back back. So we hooked up there and I'm like, maybe, yes! it wasn't, maybe it wasn't the fact that I liked her. I didn't like her at all. I just really liked the bus. Like it brought back that yes! memory and, and the, yes! the, the euphoria of it. I have a whole set about being in a cult in high school, the cult of marching band. And I cover all that shit. All of it. And uh, really, yeah, and like, I'm um, like our reward at the end of the week for all of our, you know, practicing and doing shows and stuff was the three hour bus rides back from competitions on darkened school buses where we practice hand jobs and titty twisting <laughs> and uh, fingering and wrong holery. So, wrong you know. <laughs> oh, man. It's magic on the band bus. It's magic. Yeah, like my first thought on the bus, though, is like me sitting next to my sister. So I don't know what that says about me. (laughs) We weren't that close, but, you know. (laughs) Okay, so. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) All right, so you're a Decker. Yes, I'm a Decker from the Apple Lake and Deckers. There's a Decker Road. All right. So I went to I went to UE and I Uh went I played baseball with a guy named Steven Decker and I worked with a guy named Bill Decker. Okay, so my grandmother's family, my grandma was the oldest. She was also a twin. And then they had another set of twins, my uncles, and then one more daughter. They moved from this area. uh, Oh, God, fishes, not fishes, Eddie. I can't remember. I'm forgetting what it's called. It's in the Catskills. It's a tiny little farm town. You pass it on 17 when you're coming up from the city. And then they moved to manufacturing at UE. So then a whole bunch of their families moved there. So probably distant Stephen and Bill. But so my dad grew up believing that this other guy named Wilkins was his father. And then when he was in his 50s, he found out who his real father was. And he was also a Decker. So my grandma's a Decker and my real grandfather's a Decker, both not related. So I think Decker's like Smith, where there's a lot of them. But he could be, those two could be related to my grandfather, who I didn't know was my grandfather for many years. They could be related to that Decker. But my dad kind of kept away from the Decker family as well, other than my grandma and and her sister, her twin sister. You know, it's just like, you know, how those families go. Sometimes they're not the healthiest people to hang out with. So (laughs) he sort of kept away from them. And so, yeah. So I'm sure I'm related to those Deckers somehow, tangentially. Well, I'm sure I've said this on the podcast before. I know I say it in... (laughs) I know I say to my real life a lot, but Bill Decker and I worked together for a couple of years. I love the guy. He's, he's, he was an asshole, but I loved him. And he's a couple years older than me. I was the young guy in the group and they would call me all-star because I was a gym class all-star. I tried my hardest. I tried to be the best. And they're all like, fuck you. If you slow down, we'll get paid more. So stop. So I asked him one time, like, Bill, man, why do you guys make fun of me all the time? And he goes, Peters, look at it this way. If we didn't make fun of you, we wouldn't talk to you at all. <laughs> Fair enough. I, I, I want the attention. Please make fun of me. So, so he met me right away. 
So oh, I love it. Like, I love it. I went to school with a Susie Becker. I know she is in my class, but and she played that trumpet. Becker. I'm not related to okay. um, the JC Beckers. I know my mom's side of the family more, and the and all the cousins way more. And so that's not. I mean, Becker is also a very common name in right. the German side. So so yeah. So because I went to high school with a couple Beckers, and they weren't related to either. So when did you start doing comedy? I mean, did you? I okay. did you do it here a little bit and then move, or like why why LA? Well, there wasn't that. There wasn't any stand-up going on in the eighty. And I graduated Vestal in eighty-seven, and then I went to Broome eighty-seven to eighty-nine. I knew I wanted to do stand-up, but I never verbalized it to anybody. And then when I was uh, nineteen, there was somebody doing an open mic. I saw a flyer for there's. I don't know if there's still this nightclub, but you go downstairs. It's in downtown Binghamton. You go downstairs and it was one of those nightclubs that then would have a teen night and we would all go in high school. And so they were doing an open mic. So I signed up and I verbally told one friend, I'm going to go do stand up. I want to do stand up. I've always wanted to do stand up. By the way, there was a stand up club in the Ramada Inn in one of the banquet rooms. And they would, on Friday and Saturday nights, this guy ran it. I can't I can't remember his name. It was great. He ran the stand-up rooms in Binghamton for many, many years. So he, I would go and I would, I couldn't get any of my friends to go, but I would go every Friday and Saturday and pay. He would let me pay $5 and not buy the two drinks. And I would just sit there and watch because he knew I wanted to be a stand-up. Right. So then finally, after about a year and a half of that, I got brave enough to enter that open mic. So I went and did that and literally it was all music. And it was this like hippie guy who talked about 15 minutes in between each act about how great this thing was about all of us coming together to play music together. So finally, after about two hours, I got my five minutes. Of course, it's the very first time I did it. I get off stage. I get a few laughs, but for the most part, it's rough. I get off stage and he goes on for 15 minutes about how how I could be funnier. This guy's never been funny the whole wait, night. Like just wait, like wait. He, his expert advice he did this, on how he did to be this funny. On, on stage you did this? On stage in front of everybody. Yeah. Like and there was only about 10 people there, but still it was like mortifying. <laughs> So I didn't do it again, but we did a ton of stuff. I was in the communications department at Broome. Our department chair, uh, John Butchko, amazing, amazing teacher. He always was like, go do your own stuff. Besides your classwork, go sign out that equipment. Any chance you get, go do your own stuff. He was constantly encouraging us. So we were always doing sketches or improvs or go, taking the camera and just fucking around. Like It was just great. It was so great. So then by the time I went to SUNY New Paltz, I became part of the TV station. And then I started to kind of like we did that the theater department had like had like a thing called midnight theater. So my roommate and I did this thing or like lines that men give women trying to get them to do what they want. And so we went back and forth with all the bad pickup lines that men had given us. And it was during the Gulf War. So one of them, one of them was like, I could be drafted. You know, it's like dumb shit like that. But then there was a comedy club in Poughkeepsie right across the river called Bananas. And they had a funniest college student in the Hudson Valley competition. So besides SUNY New Paltz, there was Sullivan Community College. There was Maersk. There was Vassar. There was the Culinary Institute. So like there was a lot of colleges around there. So I entered and I got third. And my friend from New Paltz got first. So New Paltz swept the prizes and wow. some girl from Vassar got second. But I got the best prize. I got tickets to come back. So then... Uh, my whole time going to college and also growing up, I was going to move to New York City, move to New York City. 
I didn't know how I was going to do it, but I was going to do it. So when I went to graduate, all my friends were just moving back in with their families because they were all from the city or Long Island. But I was like, I'm still going to do it. And then my friend's like, well, I need a roommate in LA. And I'm like, guaranteed roommate in LA, uh, not in New York. All right, I'll go to LA, see how it happens. And then I just ended up being here for 28 years. And then (laughs) as soon as I got out here, within a month, I went to the first open mic at the comedy store. That was my first open mic in LA because that was the most famous. It's always been the most famous one open mic. And then I just started from there. I did it solid for 15 years during alternate during. Okay. So in 92, the boom of stand-up comedy and clubs had died. There was so much. And then it died by 92. And there was a glut of people who couldn't get road gigs anymore and couldn't do stand-up anymore. And they were all coming to LA. So it was just saturated with stand-ups. And then alternative comedy came through, which I'm not an alternative comic, but that came through. And so it was a real tough. And then there was the age of right when it was kind of getting a little even, it was the age of the mean guy and the Seth Rogen and the Judd Apatow's, which I know everybody's a big fan of, but it, it sucked for female comics because it was just like it was the mean comedy and yeah. they were rejecting any female saying they're not funny. But then once the internet hit, that became the great equalizer because there's thousands and thousands of proof about how women are funny too. So then it's been growing. But that's when I got out of it. I was just like, I hit 15 years. I got married. My joke is I fell in love and it ruined my act. Yeah. And it sort of did. So then I took, but I was also, I was concentrating on my uh, screenwriting career instead, TV and uh, feature screenwriting career. It was the best thing I could have done for stand-up. Because I did that for 10 years, really concentrating on writing. I was always writing jokes. I was doing stand-up like once or twice a year. And then when I got divorced, I came back to stand-up like it was like the most natural thing. And I had everything that I had, uh, I had like, I was insecure about. I didn't think I was good at or anything like that. That had gone away because I had this 15 years of writing scripts and winning awards and gaining things and getting into fellowships and that kind of stuff. So when I came back, my writing was so much stronger and my confidence was through the roof because now I'm 50 and I don't give a fuck. You don't like me. I don't care. This is about me and I'm going to do it for me and I'm going to see how, but now I know how to write a joke because I've been listening for 20 years. Yeah. Like I just had this conversation a couple days ago, but what I'll do is, uh, you know, I'll work on a joke for like two weeks and then I'll perform it. I'll do whatever. And then uh, I'll let it sit for a few months. Then I'll come back. And I, if I don't touch it for six, eight months or whatever, I'm that much better of a writer. So now I can attack oh, yeah. it again and I'll rewrite the joke and then it's better. So I think like, like, and I, I was in journalism for a long time. So I knew I could write. I didn't know I could write a joke. I didn't know how to write a joke rather. And right. so once I figured out how to write a joke, I'm like, oh, okay. Like I know how to structure a story. Like I, I can tell a story. Right. I know how to, you know, hook the transition lines together, but I needed to know how to write punchlines. So I'm guessing that if you spent 15 years doing it and then took time off and, you know, became a better writer by doing something else. Yeah. And you come back, it's like, oh yeah, I, I can do this shit. Easy. Oh yeah. So it's first, it's like the, the kind of transition of, of a standup in basic terms is first, it's being comfortable on stage in front of the mic. It doesn't matter what you're saying. Then the next is just getting words out and premises out. And then once you get that, then it's trying to figure out how to write a punchline for what you're trying to say. And then from there, it's having a point of view. So once you get all that, and then the last step is 
you're having a conversation with the audience. They don't know that you're fucking telling jokes. Yep. It's just telling out there. And once you get that, so basically with my time off and all that other stuff, that stuff sort of percolated. That stuff sort of was, oh, I was always writing jokes. I was just putting them in scripts. And so now doing stand-up and writing, my script writing informs my stand-up, my stand-up informs my script writing, and it actually makes everything so much better and cohesive. When did you start? Like, because it was a draft. There was nothing when I was there. And when I left in 92, there still was nothing other than that one comedy club that he ran out of the Ramada. That was it. And even that, that was tenuous. Sometimes it was there. So I'd come home from vacation and it would be at a different place and I would do it like once or twice, you know, and then go back. But I, I didn't have the confidence to chase. Now I'm like, yeah. I chase everybody. I was a journalist for a long time in Maryland. I think it was, I think it was in Maryland for like seven or eight years. And I came up here and I wanted to keep writing. So I wanted to do stand up like really badly all through high school, all through college. I just wanted to do it, but never, you know, I never had the guts to do it. And I, I didn't know how, like, I didn't know, you know, to go to open mics. I didn't know where there were open mics, you know, even in Baltimore, I saw, I remember seeing a sign for an open mic once. And I'm like, maybe I should check it out. Never did. Cause I'm like, ah, I work second shift anyway. It doesn't matter. So I came up here and I wanted to start writing again and, you know, figure out a way to do it. And then I saw there was an open mic at a place called Maddie B's in Binghamton. And it was on like Glenwood. So not a great part of town, but it was there. I started doing comedy there. And then maybe five or six months in, we never had a regular host. I mean, it always, for the open mic, it always like, you know, hey, who wants to do it this week? And somebody would do it and you know, I guess I'll do it or whatever. Well, one week somebody said, hey, uh, anybody want to do this, mic?" And I'm like, yeah, I'll do it. And then uh, she came up to me afterwards. She goes, hey, if you ever want to do this open mic again, you know, if you want to host it, I'm like, hey, I'll do it next week. So I did it three weeks in a row and then it was just mine. So I've been been hosting the open mic in, I mean, we were in Binghamton. We were in two venues in Binghamton and then I'm at Kelly's and Endicott now. So I love that you're at Kelly's. Kelly's like has been, I love that Kelly's institution and it's still there and it's the best. It's never going away. They remodeled, but it's never going away. But I've been doing yeah. comedy for, for almost five years here. I've been hosting the open mic for about four years, and I've been doing comedy here for about five. So I had everybody, everybody had come through my brain on YouTube and, and right. TV. I'm jealous of you, though, and I understand why you got so into it in the 90s, because like, I mean, that's like Dana, just SNL, like Mike Myers and Dana Carvey. And I mean, just, I mean, Eddie Murphy is at the end of SNL, well, well, press that, uh, Phil Hartman, that crew. And then Sandler's there and Chris Rock, Spade. I mean, it was just, how could you watch that show and not want to do something in comedy? I know. It's incredible. They, I'm like, when I was at New Pulse, they, uh, Vassar would do concerts and also comedy shows in the chapel. And so you could go, but even if you weren't a student, you'd go buy tickets. And they had this lineup. They had David Spade, Rob Snyder, and Adam Sandler. Come and do a comedy night. So I went, I got there first in line. I bought them all flower carnations. I sat in the front fucking row. Like, of course I wanted to do stand-up. I, yeah. I may not have been verbalizing, but of course I was I was acting a stand-up, like a stand-up crazy fan, you know. And it was during their SNL times. But try to guess who was the opener, the middle, and the closer. Wait, for of those three. For oh, Adam Sandler, oh, Rob oh. Schneider, and David Spade in ni- in ninety three. Man, ninety three. I know Sandler was a really good stand up. Like that's how he got on SNL. Spade, I think too. You know, just because you asked me that, I'm going to say Schneider was headlining, but I don't believe he was. Uh, but Schneider I w- was headlining. Yeah, I, then I would say 
Spade than Sandler, but I don't know. My guess is it's Sandler, Spade, and, and Schneider, but it doesn't Schneider seem right. Schneider was a headliner because he was the copy guy. And they all came from yeah. stand-up, by the way. They all came oh, from stand-up. Oh, that makes sense. That and makes then sense. David was the middler because he was he was doing the uh, he was doing the, a, the asshole like IT yeah. guy. And then oh, right. it was it was Adam because Adam was only just the weird guy on a weekend update playing the songs. He hadn't hit yet. He hadn't done a, you know, hadn't really. But I tell you, I gave them all the flowers and I got backstage afterwards. And the first person I met was Schneider uh, with Sandler and Sandler was just like, or not Sandler, it was Spade. And he was just like, I need some potato chips. Like, I guess he's really level a trigger <laughs> guy. Like he just was so disinterested in meeting me. I meet Schneider and he was so Hollywood on. Hi, how you doing? You know, like robot. I meet Sandler. And he couldn't have been nicer. He grabs me in a big hug. He's like, thank you for bringing the flowers. Oh, my God. You know how much that means. He was so sweet and grateful. And then he goes, give me your address. I'm going to send you a headshot. He sent me a headshot with a sign. It's amazing. Yeah. And you know what I did? I gifted that headshot to my friend who was a, an up-and-coming stand-up. And on the back, I wrote, keep this going. Give this to your next kind of, uh, like, you know, apprentice person and yeah. so i signed my name and then gave it to her so she'll eventually pass it on to somebody else but he was the best and he's still the best i hear he's the nicest person when you meet him so, yeah like which is I, great. I, I knew you weren't gonna break my heart but i was so hoping that you wouldn't like i was like please tell me he's a nice guy because from everything he's I, mean, I saw billy madison i fell in love with him and billy madison in 95 and that is still the only movie I've ever cried while watching and just because I'd left less hard I cried, but my Lord, he, what the hell happened to me is on my wall, that album. I, I love that guy. And he seems like a prince. Everybody has great stuff to say about him. He hires his friends. He wears mesh shorts everywhere. I love the guy. He's my idol. He does hire his friends. Cause I worked on Mr. Show. So I also work in television production. Really? So I pay the bills. And I worked on all four seasons of Mr. Show. And uh, about once a year, we would uh, be forced to hire somebody's friend. And one year, we had to hire one of Adam Sandler's buddies. And he was one of my PAs. His name's Jonathan. He's in He, give, he he's in many of his films. Logren. Uh, I think it's Logren, right? Yes. Or, lo- okay. Yeah. He's also in Kill Bill number two, yeah. I think it is. He's one of the guys that was going to go fuck her comatose body. Anyways, uh, this guy was not the sharpest tool in the shed. Adam, like... <laughs> He protects his buddies. He knows they're all fuck-ups, and he takes care of them. Like, this kid, he ate... Okay, so glass that needs to break on set is made with what's called candy glass. It's it's right. some kind of weird refined sugar that breaks real easy, but it's not really sugar. It's just some kind of whatever. It's probably sugar-based, but the kid ate it. It's made <laughs> with a ton of chemicals. It's not really candy. And then I, I he had petty cash to buy things. So, like, all the PAs had petty cash. I go to him. I'm like, hey, could you go buy this thing? Uh, We need this for the thing. He goes, well, I don't have any money. I go, you had $100 in petty cash. Oh, yeah, I had to use that to pay a pot debt. I was like, oh, my God. (laughs) Such a fuck up. Like, they're all fuck ups. But he takes care of them. I mean, like, who else is going to take care of those guys? I don't know. If anybody doesn't know who he is, he's... In, he's in Big Daddy. He's in he's in a lot of those movies. Fifty uh, First uh, Dates. Yeah, he's in yeah, a lot he's of them. He's in the Water Boy. In Big Daddy, he is the friend who I don't believe he's a lawyer, but he's like reading a newspaper while the other two lawyers are hitting on each other in the house while they're watching the kid. He's got cross eyes in the Water Boy. I believe he's he's on the football team. Sandler was on God. What was the show? It's uh undeclared. Judd Apatow's uh, TV show. It was like the one after Freaks and Geeks. 
And Sandler made a cameo and he brought Alan Covert and Lochran on the show. So and at that point, Lochran was he's Adam Sandler's assistant and he hooks up with Lizzie Kaplan, I believe. So like like he got that job because of Sandler. I mean, like he got the job because of Sandler. He got laid because of Sandler on the show. Like like it was like Apatow made sure that guy knew he was only there for Sandler all the time. So. Yes, yes, of course, of course. Uh-huh. So, I mean, but, but whatever. I mean, there's always, like, honestly, if I if I do make it in anything, like, I, you know, coming back to stand-up, I was like, I don't expect anything. I just want to be the best stand-up I can be, and I want to start doing the road, because I never could do it when I was younger, and I just want to be the best I can be in front of that mic. That was my goal. I'm not thinking about Netflix. I'm not thinking about getting a manager. I'm not thinking even about getting paid. I just want to be the best I can. And I would just give myself like a month challenge. I'm like, this is what I got to do in a month. I want to get this within a month. And then I want to get this within six months. So first it was just like, I want to get a book gig within six months. And I, in a year, and I got it within three months. Then I was just like, I want to get a feature spot within a year. And I got that in another like three or four months. And then I'm like, I want to go on the road. And then I started getting road gigs within a year. I beat all my expectations. So for me, I just want to get there. But if I ever get any kind of thing, I bring in all my friends, including the friends that have been with me back when I first started, because that's what it is. That loyalty to people and people that are nice and kind and sweet. Those are the people and are funny. Those are the people I want to help. The people that are assholes or want to use you or think they can get something out of you. Those people, uh, yeah, there's no place in my world for them. I get the Sandler thing, taking care of your friends, because I would do the same. Yeah, me too. All right. So right in there, you said, I have three requirements. Got to be funny, nice, and kind, I believe you said. So what is the most important for you to want to work with somebody? What's the most important thing? What trait do you look for in a comedian to work with them? You have to be kind. I don't care if you're not funny because funny can be learned and funny can go, but you have to be a kind person. And there are plenty of people in stand-up, especially in Los Angeles, who are shit comics but they're nice people. So I will always have be, be there cheering yep. them on. There are plenty of people that are shit people and funny comics. I got nothing for them. And then there's too many people that are shit people and shit comics. And I'm like, fucking go to hell. And yep. I, I had to like, people have like tried to like come at me and I've stood my ground. I'm like, I don't care if you're shit person, I won't watch you. I will just be on my phone. I'm not going to heckle you or anything like that, but I'm not going to pay attention to you. But if you're a good person or a nice and kind person and you're just being earnest and trying and you could be the shittiest comic and you may never be funny, but if you're kind and nice, I'm there for you. I'm going to clap for you. I'm going to la- I'll give you pity laughs when I can. Like I will do it, but you can, you can't be a dick. You can't yeah. be a dick at all. So I book a lot of shows. How about you? I'm the same way. And I, I book a lot of shows up here. And when everything is normal, uh, I've got 14 yeah. rooms. So I book like three shows, four shows a week. And I'll get people asking me, hey, can I do a show? And I'm like, yeah, like I'll book you eventually. But I don't care how funny you are. You know, right. ultimately, that absolutely matters at some point. Like, like it right. obviously with the placement of the lineup or whatever. But like, if you're a shitty person who's going to screw up the chemistry of a lineup, I don't want you. If I can't trust you to, you know, treat the venue with some respect, I don't want to work with you. 
because and I'm, other comics that you're on that set with like well, if you're always heckling other comics or being a dick or going yeah. over your time running yep. the light not having a respect for any of the other comics on this show fuck you you're gone i don't i don't well, want anything to do with there, you. there was a comedian man like four years ago i don't think he's doing it anymore uh thankfully and he was okay but he didn't like open mics uh he I mean, he started a little bit after I did. So I think I was maybe, I don't even know if I was two years in. So he was maybe a year plus in. Already hated open mics, didn't didn't think he needed to do them, uh, relied on crowd work. And he blasted a whole lot of comedians through like Scranton area and about how those comics would go to different places doing the same material. And I'm like, yeah, because they practiced it, idiot. Like right. they were yeah. decent comedians. And you know, we're all young. Not one of them was like the best comedian ever. Like, you know, there's not right. Bill Burr over there. But like they were funny and trying and giving it an honest effort. And this guy right. on a Facebook video that he posted everywhere in Syracuse comedy pages, Rochester, everywhere. He said, I won't work with these guys. Uh, if I'm on a show, I won't talk to them. And I'm like, well, I'm never going to book you. And you're like, you know, at the time I was booking one or two rooms and not that I'm a big shot or anything, but like, you don't know who's listening. You don't know who's watching. And like, you, don't. you know, because that guy conceivably could be booked on 14 stages, you know, on a non-pandemic month. But like, you know, he's not. He's never going to be because he made that one because he's an asshole, essentially. And yeah. I don't care how funny you are. If we don't if we can't get along and I think I'm pretty easy to guy to get along with, then we're not going to do it. I have a big problem with guys who, for the most part, they're men who do it, uh, who believe they're better than the work and the process. Yes. And, By the way, know, all the big comics, all I'm in L.A. They all do mics. They yeah. all do mics. They all do whatever they can, especially right now, wherever they can work out, they fucking do it. So no one is too big for mics. No one, because everybody's got to work out their shit. And by the way, they do the same jokes. They have to perfect you them. Have That's to. the whole point of fucking stand up <laughs> is you go in there, you just figure it out. By the way, you do it so that when you do do it and somebody sees you, they'll hear it for the 12th time and still laugh because it's fresh and it yes. sounds like it's you're saying it for the first time. The only way you could do that is by stand-up. So get your fucking ego out of the way and fucking just do it. And if you're that way, fine. My friend and I were just talking about this. You're like, you never fucking know. You could be doing a shithole with three people in there, but one of those person could be somebody who could change your life, be a manager, introduce you to a producer, get you a job that you never expected. Even if there's nobody there, you still have to perform like you're in a fucking arena no matter yep. what it does not matter your time in front of that mic is for you and you got to perfect your shit and don't oh fuck i want to punch that guy in the dick so bad <laughs> do you know a guy named paul kozlowski at all yes okay is that bad or, or not because i like him so we don't okay <laughs> okay so here's here's the paul kozlowski <laughs> okay i don't have anything against him he has something against me because I worked on Mr. Show and he was a writer on oh, the that's first right. Year. That's right. Okay. And I forgot he about got, that he was on that. He got fired from being a writer on that show and he took it out on everybody. So he hates me to the point where I've, ne when he lived here, never able to do any of his shows. Not that I was chasing it that much because it was during right. my downtime. But then he, I guess, helped open up the, the Boho. Thing. Yeah, Boho Comedy Club. And they, he has such influence in there. I tried to get booked when I came two summers ago and he won't, the, he, to add it to the point where he won't even like, 
he badmouthed me to them. And I haven't done anything to him. Yeah. I just worked on a show that he got fired off of and he burned the village down. But he that's par for the course for Paul. I mean, he does that with, with a lot of things. And he did that with a lot of people on Mr. Show. I have nothing against him. He has everything against me. And I did nothing for the guy. So he's probably good for you because nothing has happened. <laughs> and you, he's never had. But like for me, I don't know. I've never said a bad word about him. We had a great time on the first season when we worked together everybody pulled together on mr show it was a non-union thing and we were all doing 12 jobs and like i had no influence on the writer's office i would take care of the freaking off i was getting getting shit done i was making sure everybody you know got on set on time so like i had nothing to do with his firing but for some reason i'm in that club so. well i don't i don't know he doesn't have as much uh influence as you think uh, I don't think okay. he. Well, I hope so no, because he, when I come back, I'm going to do a tour once it all opens up. I was planning it for last year, or this past year, but that's why you were on my list of people because yeah. I was going to do a whole two week thing, or is going to book as much as I could. I started to get contacts in Albany and started to get contacts in Syracuse, so like I had like a lot of momentum going because I all I want to do is the road now. So yeah, so and I well, knew I wasn't ever going to be able to do the boo even on opener spot. By the way, I'm a feature moving into headliner spot. I could do both. I've already done all of it. So like an opener spot. Okay. I think I'd be all right. Well, Paul doesn't work at that club. Like he's not affiliated with them. No, but, I know, but he helped yeah. open it. He's got influence. Mm, yes, you're right on that. But I'll put in a word for you. Uh, I, I don't know how. Much, <laughs> okay, I don't you're know how the much, one I'm going to talk to. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know about that. I don't think I'm. The, I don't think Is I'm. Is it even going to be open? To talk to. Uh, I don't know. Is it going to be? I, I assume so, but who knows? Uh-huh. It's like I, I have nothing to do with it. But what I'm saying with Paul is like, you know, I knew his his list and and at that point I'm probably two years in and I'm not very good, I guess, but like he came up to me and he goes, I booked him on a show and I figured, oh, he'd say no. And he said, Yeah, I definitely would. And cause he said, You you bust your ass. And he goes, You work yeah, hard. So regardless of how funny I was or how funny I wasn't, the work ethic and me being a nice guy helped create opportunities so absolutely when i came back to stand up yeah 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 when i came back to stand up i ran into ian bag you know who ian bag is right yeah 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 so i ran it he's an old friend so i ran into him at the improv and i you know just started he's like what are you up to i'm like i'm back doing stand-up i've been doing all this stuff by the way we're friends on facebook and instagram so he saw that i was already booking a bunch of stuff and i was already working really hard and he goes well come and do my friends and family at the ice house i was like Okay. And so like, he basically was like, come and open for me on a main stage on a major comedy club. And that was my first time. And he goes, yeah, of course, I'm going to book you. You work your ass off. You're funny. And you're cool. A cool person. So he's put me on twice. And I'm in one of his rotations of openers. And it is so cool. The first time I got on that stage, on a main stage in a proper comedy club, it was as if I was in the exact right moment at that time in the universe. And I wasn't nervous and I fucking did great. Of course, those audiences are very giving because they love Ian, but they still, I did great. And I'm not going to say I killed, but it was the best I had done up until that point. And I felt like a thousand dollars and I got off stage and I got paid and I got a free meal and I got a free drink. I was a real comic. And so I'm like, God damn it. I did it. And that was less than a year of me back being in. And that like, I'd hit my goal. Like I was just like, so it's incredible, like what you can do when you are work your ass off and nice person. And yes, you may not be as funny as you want to be, but you're getting there. And comics like me who've been in there forever, we know that we see that we know because we had been there. 
So when you're good and you work your ass off and you're nice, we're always going to tell you and we're always going to tell you to keep going and we're always going to help you along. Like I have a bunch of newbie comics. I do a bunch of Zoom shows. I do a Zoom mic with my friend and then I have some other shows. And if people go, I need somebody, who can I have? I go, here are the newbies that I think are going to be great and they're getting their feet wet. Take them. And I will always promote them because I know they need that encouragement too. So, And I never really got that when I was first starting because it really – and I also was like one of six – women in LA doing stand-up. There was not a lot of us in LA. Well, who, it was really not fun. Who was down in LA at that point? Like, was I don't know where they were, but I know Margaret Cho was getting big. Roseanne no. was on TV already. Sarah Silverman was in New York. So I don't it know. Was, was when I first got here in 92, the biggest female comic was Roseanne. Okay. And Ellen also. Oh, right, right, right. I forgot about her. And Rosie, but she was in New York. But it wasn't until the alternative scene about 95 when that started to build. That's when Margaret Cho came out of, and that's when uh, um, Maria Bamford. Uh, well, Maria was a little bit later. So it was first. It was Margaret Cho, but it was also Laura Keitlinger. All oh, right, it was Kathy Griffin, and oh, I'm trying to think of all the. I mean, there's a lot of people that you don't know because they weren't as huge, but like they came out of that. And then the next wave was the Maria Bamfords and well, Karen and Jackie Kilgariff. Karen Kilgariff, right? yeah. Yeah, I'm not a fan of Karen. Okay. That was the next wave. That was like the 2000s to 2005. That also had Zach Galifianakis in it. Right. And that had Chris Hardwick and uh, uh, Brody Stevens and, you know, that kind of thing. And then there was a couple of people who were comics that then became actresses like Retta and Stephanie Courtney, who's flow on Progressive. So, like, oh, there's, right, there's right. like a ton of people. And then the next was the Jen Kirkmans. Because so there's always been this like five year stints of people, the yeah, female comics. Like, probably down there. And Whitney Cummings was yeah was in the yeah. like 2000 to 2005, yeah. and but she she didn't do a lot of the stand up. I was the stand up show, the mics and that kind of thing. I was doing. She was like a different group of people. See, back in LA before the internet, there was just kind of like circles of people, and the circles would sometimes overlap, but most people stuck to their circles of mics that they would do because there was only like one or two mics a night. There wasn't like 12. Now, with the internet, you can look on. We have a thing called the Comedy Bureau in LA, and it lists all the open mics on each night. Okay, okay, cool. And you look there, and you go, okay, I can hit these three mics, these lineup timing-wise. And these. And so every night after work, I would just hit two or three mics. Sometimes I'd hit four, just depending on the time. It was great. Like I was sleeping five hours, and that's all I needed because I was getting so fulfilled going from mic to mic to mic, doing all the shows. And you know, you'd see some of the same people at each one, but for the most part, you get different uh, groupings of people on the mics. And that hustle, seeing how hard you work, that shows. So if somebody ever goes in my little group, my new group of people, they're going to see who's the hardest workers and there's the ones that they're going to take with them. You know what I mean? Yeah. That are funny and the hardest workers and are nice and kind. When you stepped away from stand up, I mean, did you miss it immediately or did you need that break? I needed that break. It okay. also was super mean. I remember the last one I went to, uh, there was a whole bunch of guys who were trying to look like Zach Galifianakis getting up there, trying to do the Zach Galifianakis thing. And like I said, it was during that kind of Judd Apatow, Seth Rogen-y mean kind of attitude to comedy. And so that's what they were doing. So I got up there and I remember doing it in front of these room full of guy, the young guys who are just like, one, they can't talk to women because they've never been able to talk to women. Yeah, like frat guys. What are they? Like frat brothers. Well, but nerd guys also, you know. 
kind of things who just are socially retarded and they just cannot get their shit together, you know? And so I would do my jokes and they, they not only didn't laugh, but they were like angry at me. And I went, I got a guy back home who will touch my butt all night. I think I'm going to fucking give this up. I'm done. I'm done. But then I, I went and I went uh, to IO West and I was in a theater company that we presented like pilots and sketch things and talk show stuff. Like, so I did a lot more physical acting-y kind of stuff, which was good. And that fulfilled the comedy with me. And then I was doing non-union acting, getting a bunch of stuff there, and then did some union acting. And so when I started to get back into television, working television, I think I was just like preparing myself to start doing stand-up again. And then when I did, I was working in Chicago. And uh, I was almost divorced. I was working in Chicago and I'm like, well, no one knows my jokes here. So why don't I start here? Because all I have is my old jokes and I'll do my old jokes to get the ball rolling, get all the cobwebs out. So by the time I get to LA six months later, I'll be better footed. And it was great because I discovered that I could write a joke. I could take a joke that I wrote today and marry it with something I wrote 20 years ago and no one would know. And it worked great. So there's like a lot of that. So it's it's actually, it was really healthy for me. It was exactly the right thing for me to do for my standup. And now my standup is like, it gets better and better every time I get on. You know, I'm not saying I'm the best standup, but for me, I'm the best standup I've ever been. And I'm so proud of myself. Well, I knew of you because uh, a buddy of mine, Seth Ruddick from Cortland. Uh, yes. He, you guys did a show together and he goes, you got to see Wendy. She was really good. So, you know, you got good reviews there. But what's it like for you to leave the area, go away for 20 years or so, and then come back and do stand-up. Is that odd? No, it was so fun because I actually, I have so many things about my stand-up that I talk about home. And of course I'm busting on home, but it's also like a love letter to home. I love talking about like where I grew up and, you know, uh, being from the family I did and all that other stuff. So being able to come home, it was like I honored the place where I grew up, that honored the place that like made me and grew up you know, made me to grow up to be who I am and, and as tenacious as I am. So being able to come back and do stand up and I see there's so many more opportunities to do stand up in the area. So that makes me super happy. It was so fun. So like the first time I did stand up coming back, I, I put together a show with my friend, Damon Millard, who's from Binghamton, who's also a stand up. He lives in New York. And we put together a show called Comics Coming Home. It's on my wall right there. I don't know if you can see it. And oh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. the poster. <laughs> and we did it at the Relief Picture because he had done that where he did his album taping there. And we did it in their side room and we sold it out. And yeah, the majority of the people were my friends and family. But it was so good to be able to, to like go, I know I've been telling you guys for 25 years that I'm a stand-up, but here is the proof that I'm a stand-up <laughs> and I'm funny. And everybody had a blast. And that's why I was like, oh, I can't wait to do this because I'm honoring everybody. And like, and in my act, I'm like, okay, here's all the jokes I can only do here in Binghamton because <laughs> it's so regional, you know? So that was fun too. It was such an honor. And I want to keep doing it and keep honoring it. And I knew people would get me in my stand-up because I'm very much upstate. I'm freaking drinking Diet Mountain Dew. You can take the girl out of New York. You can take the upstate New York out of the girl. Like I am, you know, Vestal. And so when I go there, people get it. Even though I've lived in LA forever, they get it and they, they're with me. So that's all that that's all that matters. So transitioning from a really good night, do you remember your worst set you've ever had? I mean, just the one yeah. that absolutely made you want to quit. Yeah. Okay. So I, it's early on in my career. I'm in LA, in LA. So all the big clubs have open mics. 
The comedy store is the most famous. The second one's the improv, but those were sporadic. It was like only once a month. But then there's the Laugh Factory. And so the Laugh Factory has this, and it hasn't had it forever. It's had a little bit of variation, but basically you go there on a Tuesday and you have to wait all day outside until you sign up. And so during the time when I was doing it, you would wait there from 8 a.m. until 6 p.m., on the sidewalk, so people would see you, even in rain or shine, and you could go for an hour to go eat or do something, but you had to come back. And the first 15 people that were there waiting all day got the 15 spots to do the open mic for three minutes. So there's that. So I w- I've been doing this for months. I made so many friends in that line. I still have great friends that I made in that line, you know, to this day. And then we go in there and you did your show. So you did your, uh, the three minutes was from like 7 p.m. until 8 p.m. And then the regular show started at 8 p.m. So if you came early as an audience member, you got to see some of the open mics. And if you didn't get in the first, if it got went long or whatever, and you didn't get in that first thing, you sort of had it got bumped until after this first show, which was like an hour and a half. And then they had a half hour before the next show. And then you would, you would finish it up. So I got bumped to that thing. And as they're about ready to call me up, in walks Damon Wayans. No kidding. And he fucking goes right on stage. So I got bumped by Damon Wayans. And then he went on for an hour and a half. And he wasn't funny. He just walked almost everybody in the room. An hour and a half of just fucking around on the mic. Just trying to work out shit. Just he had the they even gave him the light for half an hour and he wouldn't get off like chasing any kind of laugh. And finally, after he gets off, then they call me up and I literally was already like done. And I think I started to cry on stage and I got through maybe two minutes of it. And I went, thanks. I got off stage and I was just like, I don't think I'm ever doing this again. And I went home and cried all night. I remember that it was awful. And I'm like, I don't fucking like when big people do that, by the way. When, um, what's his name? That fucking guy uh, who did his show, Larry David. Oh, yeah. When Larry David was, it was before he started his fucking show, he had the concept of a show. So he would go around to Mike's and he knew people would put him up and he would go in there and do that fucking character and kill the room for anybody who was doing the show. And then he would leave and then it was instantly dead after that because he was not funny. He was just being that character. So he was killing all these rooms. So you would build up this great momentum in a room with a mic or a show and then fucking Larry David would come in and ruin it. That's why I do not like anybody who's a dick because of that, even if you're big. So, yeah. Well, the famous story with Larry David is that, like, you know, he did his set. People didn't laugh and he got mad at them and walked off the stage. That's exactly what happened every time. And then he would kill the room. And then everybody's like, oh, this is weird and uncomfortable. And then every comic had to fucking try to get the room back. And most of the time we couldn't get it back because he had already killed it. He didn't give a shit about anybody else. No, that's not. I don't play that. No. So when you make it big, you're never going to do that? You're never going to be like, hey, I'm in New York City. I'm going to go to New York Comedy Club and fuck everybody else. You wouldn't do that? No, fuck no. <laughs> Everybody's there. Do Everybody there's a professional. They're trying to work their shit out. I would never be that disrespectful. If somebody wanted to put me up, I would go up for 10 minutes and I'd get off. But I would never derail a show. I would never derail a show. Ever. Just because I'm famous or, or I, I, I got to stroke my ego or whatever. Fuck no. There was a guy in Binghamton. I hosted the show. He and his friend sat in the front row. He's on the show. But he got on stage, did whatever. His friend, her cell phone went off during my set. She answered the phone there. 
And then uh, the producer of the show got on stage and then that guy and his friend left the show. They just went to go dancing or whatever. I saw that and I'm like, one, fuck him. I'm never going to book him. I just don't yeah. like, I don't like that attitude. And I don't right. understand how you could have that, especially locally. Like you're not right. that good. Yeah. No, you can't. You can't. I mean, honestly, it's, it's actually good that they do that shit because it just shoots them in the foot and then they've already sh- shown their cards and then you're like, okay, good. They're on the no fly zone. Yeah. Not, not a problem. If you do it once to me, it's never going to happen again. So like, yeah, that's fine. That's fine. You, you just fucked yourself. Okay. And by the way, I'm telling everybody, <laughs> like, it's not just me. I'm fucking telling everybody. So like, you know, don't be a dick. Are you working on a show right now? What, what's Coos? Is, that a, is yeah. that a show you're developing? Oh, so Coos is my latest half hour uh, dramedy pilot that I've written. It's based on like me getting divorced and then trying to like restart myself in Los Angeles in Hollywood and then going through that and uh, being like older, overweight. Uh, you know, ordinary, childless, uh, never wanting to get married again or falling in love again. And just sort of, but like restarting my career as a writer, trying, you know, that as a stand up at 50, which is, you know, unthink of in, in Los Angeles. But it's also about just working class Hollywood. There's so many people that are just working class, hardworking people that work in the industry or other industries here that, yeah, we're never going to make it. But like, it's not about that. It's about us actually actively going after our dreams. That's the success. Like I said, the fact that I got out of town and am actually actively pursuing something I would lay in my bed in Vessel Center and dream about thinking, oh, if only I could do this. And then that moment I got that, I went, holy shit, I can't believe I got this. This is something I've been dreaming of. I didn't think I would ever be a production assistant on a network TV show. And now I do, currently I'm doing COVID-19 compliance on the TV show Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Oh, wow. So that's a new job right now because of COVID. So we do the testing and training of all of the crew members to make sure we're all safe. And we adhere to all the guidelines. And, you know, we're kind of those, that ambassador to our TV show. But every TV show has a COVID team. But before that, I was doing travel. And it's like, I'm still doing the thing that I always wanted to do, which is work in television. I'm not shoveling shit. I'm not babysitting. I'm not working at Chuck E. Cheese. I'm not washing dishes at Denny's. I'm not being a counselor. I, this is all jobs I had when I lived in, Binghamton, <laughs> in, in, in the Binghamton area. You know, like like I worked at Express at the mall. Like I'm not doing those jobs. I did all those jobs. And now I'm doing a job in an industry that I always dreamed I didn't know if I could ever be in. And now I'm in it. I'm deep in it. And I get to do it. And I, I love it. And the bonus is now I get to also do my art, which is stand up. And then I get to do my craft, which is screenwriting. And so nobody can stop me from doing those things. And I can do them until I die. And I am going to do them till I die. And that is the joy. That makes me a success. I don't care about the money. I don't care about the fame. I care that I get to do what I want to do in my life. And that's what I've always wanted to do since I was 10 was to be a writer. And I'm writing. And that that matters. That completely and utterly matters. And I'm so proud of myself. When I was in college, I had a mass communication major with a dual emphasis in journalism and broadcasting. And the goal was to work at ESPN. And somebody said, hey, if you could be on TV or if you could write for a magazine, a newspaper, what would you choose? And that was always a hard question for me because I like doing both, but I decided to go into newspapers and journalism, print journalism, because I could see my name in print. I like that. 
So if yeah. you could choose writing or stand-up, do you have a preference or are they like neck and neck? Are they tied? Right now they're tied. Like when I first was starting out, it was stand-up and then it became screenwriting. And right now they're tied because they don't have to be mutually exclusive. I could do the writing in the day and stand up at night, which is what I do. By the way, I'm constantly writing jokes. I have so many pieces of paper with ideas and jokes. I just did that road trip where I drove a car to Utah. (laughs) You didn't need to show me proof. I got it. I believe you. Here's my set looks book. And then here's my write. I write out the jokes in this book, you know, and then I have cards. And when I I have to do a big, uh, big tour, I put them all in three by five cards and I put them on my wall and I rearrange them to get them out, you know, what I need to do and stuff like I'm constantly, I'm a Virgo, so I'm constantly making lists. And I'm constantly like revising stuff and going through and m- making it better. So I guess if put a gun to my head, I would have to pick uh, stand up because that actually embod- I'm able to embody everything on a stand up. Whereas screenwriting is very solitary and you have to do it yourself and you have to concentrate. And I love screenwriting. Like I love it, has been in me since I was 10. But if I had to pick one, it'd have to be stand up because I get to also be expressive and be on stage and convey my ideas to an audience. It's not just me. It is me and a whole bunch of people. And that's what's the best part about stand up is being able to reach a, a shit ton of people at a very short amount of time. Have you ever had a chance to run into Adam Sandler, you know, since you've been in LA? No, I haven't. I wish I have. Like, it's funny because uh, when I worked on Mr. Show, I thought maybe he would show up. He didn't show up. Right. But like, if I do, I not only have that whole thing about Vassar and Jonathan Lager, <laughs> but I almost dated one of his college friends and I can't remember his college friend's name, but I was kind of a dick to him. And so I kind of want to be, be by Adam to go, Hey, what's your college friend's name? So I can apologize to him. You know, like, like I, you know, when Facebook came out, I got a shit ton of apologies. It was awesome. Like people from my past, mostly guys, I got so many apologies. And then I was able to apologize to a bunch of people, which, you know, 95% of the time they were like, Oh, I didn't even care about that. I was like, thank you. So, but like, there's still, still a few people I need to apologize in my life for. And one of them is Adam Sandler's college buddy that I can't remember. I stood him up on a date and I shouldn't have. And I was just dumb. And, you know, I was fucking 23 in LA. I had no clue what I was doing, you know? So like I needed, I just needed to apologize to him. And uh, I don't even remember his name. I think it was Michael. I don't know. It's just like, but I know if I saw Adam, I could go, Hey, and give him the details because I know a lot of details about this guy, but not, I don't remember his name. He would know. And then I'd be able to say, Hey, could you tell him? <laughs> I need to say, hey. by the way, I love you still. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I got to see the timeline, but I'm sure Sandler had graduated NYU before going to the Cosby show, but he was on like four episodes of the Cosby show. He was, I the think dork- he did it while, no, he did it while he was at NYU. Oh, really? Okay. Okay. Man, did you know that? Before you stood the guy up, because I don't think it's legal to stand up a guy whose roommate, whose best friend maybe, is on the Cosby show. <laughs> I no, listen, I had a it was a, there was another guy involved who was also vying for my attention. That's why I was Fair I, enough. I still feel shitty. I still feel shitty. And that happened in ninety three and I still want to apologize to this guy. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. I I was just going to say where I was in 93, but I don't think you want to hear that. <laughs> Are you in the ball sack of your father? <laughs> <laughs> I wish. Oh, I've never said that before. That's wow. That's weird. <laughs> new, something new for therapy. Uh, no, 93, I was in fourth grade. 
some fourth grade. I'll spend oh, okay. Oh, so you're yeah. like ten years. You're like ten yeah. or thirteen years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. So I'm thirty-seven now. Okay. So yeah, uh, yeah. At, at, at that point, I mean, obviously, I'd never heard of Adam Sandler at that, you know, ninety-three. Right. But oh, here's here's a fucked up story. Not really a fucked up story, but obviously, you know about Bill Cosby. I don't want to break any news to you, but uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so. Mansfield is a very fine college. I, I like it a lot. I, I still go there every once in a while. I speak there when they are desperate. But for a long time, like Mansfield's claim to fame was that on one episode of The Cosby Show, Bill Cosby wore a Mansfield sweatshirt. Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So like, I remember I have it somewhere on my phone. It's just Bill Cosby wearing a black Mansfield sweatshirt. And I had it, and every once in a while I sent it to my buddies. And then he got busted. I'm like, ah, we got nothing now. I <laughs> know. Okay. What Louis C.K. did was awful, awful, awful. The secondary part of it is that he robbed all of us stand-ups of a teacher of stand-up. Yeah. Like, he is a professor of stand-up. And every time I watched him do a show, do a set, do an interview, I learned how to be a better stand-up. So he not only was a horrible human being to women who were essentially his... uh, students, like as far as stand-up goes, he took advantage of that situation for his sexual needs. He also robbed all of us in stand-up of a great teacher of stand-up. And I never want to learn anything else from him anymore because he's already busted his credibility with me and every other female, you know? Yeah, it's really unfortunate. Yeah, it is. And so like when shit like that goes down, the fucking big, big ones constantly rob us of being a teacher of stand-up. Like, how do stand-ups learn? We learn by watching other stand-ups. That's how we learn. We learn by watching. There's, there, You could take a course, but that doesn't necessarily... It's all about doing and watching. So the only way we get better is by watching other people and how they do it and listening to how their process is going. So when you rob us of that, you rob us of an education. And for and the fucking... I never liked Aaliyah. It was not a thing for me, but I don't know if he was a teacher of many people. I don't know. I... Crystalia to me, I, I guess I understood the appeal a little bit, but I, he laughed at his jokes too much for my liking. Like I just didn't. I'm not like a frat guy type guy. I don't know. I just. I know. Wasn't, yeah. He wasn't my style. Well, that kind of that kind of stand up is sort of kind of going out of fashion, which is great. The frat boy bro kind of stuff, yeah. and I, it's good because it just opens up the world for a lot more creative and wonderful worlds of stand-up that we haven't necessarily been exposed to because it's been so monopolized by that bro fret boy thing. And now it's, it's, it's just making the world better and us all richer and better for it. So I say, keep knocking down the, the fucking idiot. <laughs> yeah. Like I, I'm way too self-deprecating to fall into that bro category. I just, you know, cause I don't see, I think what I like about standup is the, the, you know, the failability. And, yeah. you know, you're not the cool kid. You're whatever. And, yes. and not not that I ever thought Delia was the cool kid, but I felt like he thought he was the cool kid. And it's like, I that's know, really, and that's, I don't know. It, 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 yeah, it doesn't, it rubs me the wrong way. And so you know, much. I, I like when you're taking shots at like, like I, you could have, you could have one person who's really funny. You could have another person who's almost as funny, but it's like, if the person who's funny is really cocky, you know, it evens the field a little bit for me. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. All I know is stand-up is getting better all the time in all kind of forms of it. And so it is actually, it pushes you to be better. 
And uh, I love my period. It's so funny when non-comics ask me who my favorite comics are. And I go, nobody you know, nobody you've heard of. It's all my peers. It's all these the people that I see all the time who are working really hard, who have jokes, who like have a style, who like figure their shit out, and like they don't hit it on the head half the time. But like that's the point is you don't hit it on the head half the time. You just push through until you get that those gem, the cream of the crop jokes that you know talk about you and who you are, and you go from there. So I I'm just so proud of all my friends and all the people that I I love and admire here in Los Angeles and. You know, it's like, it's such a big world and I cannot wait to go see more of it. Like, cause I did the, I did Wisconsin. I did the road of Wisconsin in September uh, with Damon and it was great. And we got to meet a bunch of Milwaukee comics and some of them are really talented. It's great. And you're like, oh, I hope you go to a bigger city so more people can see you, you know? And so I know when I come back now that I know you and I know all these uh, mics, I can actually, cause we didn't actually get to do any mics when we were there. Cause we, I don't think we knew of any mics or if we did, it was during our show. We weren't doing it, but I can't wait to come and like get to see some of the talent that's in Binghamton and, you know, Endicott and wherever else the standup is happening. I cannot wait to do that, you know, and I met Seth now. And so now I get to get exposed to the Elmira or wherever Seth's, you know, that area and stuff and hit Albany and some other places and hopefully Syracuse, you know, so. Yeah, there's a bunch of really funny comedians around here. Uh, When do you, do you have any plans to come back or is that kind of on I'm trying for the summer. So I'll try for August again. That was my plan last year. I'll try for August again. But it does depend on, I work until the middle of April and it'll depend on when I in California can get the vaccine too. And then how New York opens up. So, cause that's the main thing. If those restaurants or those places, entertainment is in the last phase in California here, live entertainment. Yeah. So unless live entertainment is opened here, I may not be able to go you know, to New York. If New York's open more, because Wisconsin was way open, they've never closed. So that's why we were able to go to Wisconsin. So like if New York is more open, like more, if live entertainment is allowed, then fuck for sure, I'm going to do it. But it's going to be one of those things, wait and see kind of thing. And then I'll be back. I'll be back so hard. (laughs) (laughs) You're going to get like, hey, hey, all right, give me on this show. Give me on this show. Give me on this show. Any show. I want to be on every show, every mic and every show. I want to be on all of them. Well, I guarantee you that uh, if you give me enough notice and we're open, I will definitely book you. So at that point, I am the guy to know. So Yes, you are. You are. (laughs) <laughs> I have a little map of upstate New York and your name is around the Binghamton area. <laughs> I don't know. But I don't know. Part of me wants to be sad about that, but hey, here we are. No, it's good. <laughs> it's good. See, I don't know. What are you doing? Uh, do, are you doing journalism in Binghamton or are you doing something else? No, I was doing comedy. I was paying all my bills in comedy. So Wow, yeah, that's yeah, great. Got, that's yeah, I got, uh, got wiped out, but I tried. Uh, so yeah. but no, I left, I left journalism in 2013. Oh, okay. So the thing is, the great thing about standup is it's mobile. And so you will, okay, you've been doing it five years. So now you've, you've got probably a good five, 10 minutes under your belt. It's probably good. It's not great, but it's good. It's solid stuff. So then you are going to start the next five years. You're going to start doing little road trips once we open up and we're all normal again. Then you'll do little road trips. You go down to Scranton, you do, you'll hear about somebody, somebody will sell you on something. And so you'll start doing that if you haven't already. And then from there, you'll end up getting to know more people that then will take you to maybe New York City. You'll go right. for a weekend and do some shows there or whatever. So 
that's the great thing about stand-up. You could start at any time in your life, and many people do. It does not matter. It's not a young person's game. It's a, You just have to be funny in order for people to pay attention to you. And three, it, you can go anywhere with it. You can make a living and go anywhere with it. And so that doesn't mean, don't think, I mean, if you have any kind of maybe remorse that you're back home, don't, because you're back home, what's happening now in your life is going to inform your standup so well that you're going to take it when you move to the next level. And if you go out and you leave Binghamton again, you're going to take all of that, which is what I did. I just took everything that I had growing up and made it funny to myself and very specific. But I'm like an every ordinary woman of all America. So like I can go Wisconsin. They love my jokes because I'm like, like them, you know, small town. And I'm, you know, middle, middle, lower middle class. And, you know, like they understood they got me much like anywhere else. So they're going to get you. They're going to get you anywhere you go. So you, it'll take you wherever you want it to go. You don't have to stay in one place. Well, no, I do like Binghamton a lot. I just, I like ragging on it. You know, it, it's a. Uh, <laughs> of course. That's what we do. <laughs> that's what we do. By the way, I blow my nose all the time. My nose runs constantly when I talk. So I know you can only hear me on this podcast, but the <laughs> me blowing my nose is just, I have a bad runny nose from growing up in households filled with cigarette smoke in Binghamton. So, you know. <laughs> one more reason to leave. Yeah. <laughs> well, I appreciate it. It was, it was so much fun talking to you. Uh, do you want to plug anything? You got any social media? Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go to uh, my Instagram. That's where I post all my uh, stand-up stuff and all my screenwriting stuff. It's at Wendy Jean because I'm Wendy Jean. When I go back to upstate New York, I'm Wendy Jean. I'm not Wendy. I'm Wendy Jean. So W-E-N-D-Y-J-E-A-N. I have a YouTube channel that has a lot of my like little projects, um, stuff I've made throughout the years. I do have a radio play that I made. It's a dramatic radio play, post-apocalyptic called One More Day about the start of the second American Revolution. I made it 10 years ago. And who knew? Who knew? I was a little foreshadowing. That's got like over 44,000 listens to it. So that's a cool thing. My Twitter, I don't Twitter much. It does my brain in. But if you want to follow (laughs) me, it's Wendy Loves Chewy. But I spelled Chewy wrong. So it's C-H-E-W-Y instead of I-E, which is, it's meant to be Chewbacca because I do love Chewbacca. Um, and then Facebook, I'm Wendy Jean Wilkins. Uh, though, if I don't really know you, I'm not going to friend you on Facebook there. So. <laughs> That's fair. And then uh, there's Venmo. No, I don't. <laughs> um, <laughs> but the, the Instagram is the most the most specific one. That's that's good. But I, yeah, all my stand-ups there, I do a ton on Zoom. So a lot of Zoom shows, a lot of free Zoom shows and some paid. But come and support live comedy, even if it's on your computer. Please come and support live comedy comedy and i'm in la but i am soon to be on the road as soon as shit opens up it's going to be the roaring 20s again and i am going to be all over the united states especially upstate new york doing stand-up anywhere somebody will listen to me because i (laughs) fucking am obsessed i love it and i can't wait to share it with all you guys oh my god thank you so much mike for having me it's a blast thank you so much for doing it by the way we gotta we gotta talk about our favorite pizza Okay. Oh, definitely, definitely. Okay, my my top favorites, and it's regional, is Vestal Bakery, and then it's Councils over in Endicott. I hope they're still o- they're going to be open when this is all over. And then it's Brosetti's in JC. Yep. Okay, that's because so that's my that's my uh, that's my hometown. I uh, I used to live on Murphy 
in Endicott, you know, over by the Catholic elementary yeah, yeah. school there. So the consoles, yeah, yeah. I love consoles. And then JC, because my mom went to JC, so she always would get Rosetti. So like, so those are my top three pizzas. What are, What's yours? I go Nick's. Nick's oh, and Tony is kind yeah. of the same thing, but Nick's, then Nurchies on Vessel Parkway, and then Brosetti's. Okay. I'm not, I've never, I was never a Nurchies fan, but I, I understand it. <laughs> well, once you date a Nurchie, you keep eating the pizza. Oh, you dated a Nurchie? That's how they get you. Yeah. Oh, shit. I've never dated a local famous person. I'm so jealous. I'll give you a number. <laughs> Oh man, that's so funny. That's so funny. <laughs> All right. Well, now I'm hungry. I got to go. <laughs> okay, cool. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you, Mike. I'll talk to you in a bit. I hope they let me in. 